Good evening. My name is Dan, and I get to serve here as the Youth Ministry Director of Christ Central. Thank you for joining us tonight for our Good Friday service. Tonight's text will come from Isaiah chapter 53. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 together at this time. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 through 6. And as I read this, would you give this your careful attention? Because this is not just any word. This is God's word for us this evening. And so Isaiah chapter 53, starting from verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thus far, the reading of God's word this evening. Would you join me in a quick word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we look at this text this evening, as we look at the cross once again and just consider what it means for us, the sign of suffering, the sign of death, but also the sign of hope for those who believe in Christ. Father, we pray, would you speak to us this evening to challenge us, to comfort us, to guide us, and to draw near to us as you invite us to draw near to you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so throughout the year, we take time to remember and reflect on significant life events that have shaped who we are at the, at the present. You know, we celebrate birthday parties, right? Remembering both the friends and the moments that we've made on the way. We have anniversaries, maybe the first time you moved to a different city, maybe got your first job, maybe when you got married. These moments and decisions that we make that alter the death direction of our lives. Or maybe we remember those times that were not as great. You know, we remember those times where we've lost someone, specifically someone whom we've loved and who's loved us, who's had a significant impact in shaping who we are today. You see, part of being human and living a full life is to take moments to stop, reflect, and remember our past as it shapes our present and our future. And that's what this day is for the Christian. You see, Good Friday is a day where we remember Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, not to glorify death, suffering, injustice, but to remember, to stop, slow down, and consider again what makes the gospel good news. What makes the gospel good news? What good can possibly come from suffering, especially of someone so far away and so long ago. You see, the text that we just read comes from the prophet Isaiah, who spoke hundreds, thousands of years before today. And Isaiah was a messenger of the Lord, writing to a people who had lost their homes, lost their family, lost their very sense of identity as the conquering nation of Babylon deported them out of their homeland. See, they were at the lowest point in the history of their people. And at this point, the prophet Isaiah writes a prophecy to them 
a prophecy of a servant, the servant of the Lord who would be filled with the Spirit of God and would come and bring justice on the nation, the chosen servant who would be effective and bless, not only be blessed, but also bless others. This servant would triumph, but he would do so through great suffering. And as Christians who have the New Testament as well as the Old, we recognize that this servant whom Isaiah talked about is Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant whose sacrifice secures our forgiveness from sin, our reconciliation with God, and our hope for today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. And so that's what I want us to see this evening as we study this text together, that we'll see that Christ is the suffering servant whose sacrifice secures our forgiveness. And we're gonna look at this as well as our text in three points. First, we're gonna consider the shocking humility of the servants before then turning to the suffering for sin and finally look at the saving sacrifice, the saving atonement that Christ offered on our behalf. And so tonight, I hope that we can be reminded that our good, indeed our greatest good, comes from Christ, our suffering servants. And so we're going to turn to our text now, Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 3, as we look at the shocking humility of this servant. You see, when, when the servant comes, it's shocking because he is the Lord and his power revealed. The Lord revealed his power through this servant. In verse 1, he's, when he says, the arm of the Lord. You see, this phrase, the arm of the Lord, was this militaristic, salvific power of God to deliver his people from their enemies. This is the same power that Israel would refer to when they were taken out of Egypt, out of the oppression of their slavery, into a new and better land. This is the same power that the psalmist would sing about and praise God about as he was going to worship him. And so for these Israelites who were off in a foreign land, who did not have a place to just rest and call home, this was exactly what they were looking for, the arm of the Lord. They're longing for a return and a restoration to a nation under God's protection. Or to simplify it, they were just longing for home. They were longing for a place in the midst of all the craziness of their life to find comfort and calm, safety and security. That safety and security was taken away from them by a military power. And so naturally, they might think, all right, we need another military power, someone stronger, someone mighty like a king to come defeat the nations and restore us as a nation, as a king over us. See, that was their expectation, a king of power, a king of majesty. But Isaiah tells us that wasn't the servant that came. Rather than the king they got a servant who was a seeming nobody because although the Lord revealed his power, the people rejected him. See, the description in verse two is that he had no form, no majesty, no beauty. If you look at his upbringing, he was called a sprout, truly delicate, needing utmost attention and care, unable to care for itself. Moreover, he was called from a dry ground, which literally was a place where nothing good could come out of, worse than the desert. No human, no plant could ever survive or thrive in that place. You see, they wanted a king high and mighty, but they received a servant, humble 
and meek. Their expectations remained unmet, and that led to a response of rejection. So the servant was despised. He was rejected. This is who will save us? This person, we're gearing up for a fight. We're ready to take on the nations, and we're given a humble and meek servant. See, their unmet expectation resulted in dissatisfaction. It resulted in disbelief, even to the point of despising the one who called himself God's chosen servants. And this prophecy in Isaiah This prophecy as Isaiah was fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus came. You see, Jesus came performing wonders and teaching as one of authority, even when the heavens opened up and pronounced, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The people saw him and they rejected him. This is who's gonna save us? A man born of a virgin, son of a carpenter, from a no-name city, Nazareth? If we expected someone to deliver us, we would expect him to be tining and being present with the powerful of society, and yet what is he doing? He's hanging out with the worthless of society, those who are despised, those who could never change the world, and he's hanging out with them? Why doesn't he just go and defeat the Romans who are oppressing over us? Didn't God promise us a nation? What is he doing? Or even worse, Why is he telling his disciples he's going to die? That's not how a king operates. That's not how a king conquers. You see, they saw him. He came as this servant, but they didn't want Jesus, this powerful arm of the Lord. They wanted a Jesus who was practical to their immediate needs. A Jesus that they could immediately say, Jesus, fix this for me. This is what I'm immediately going through. Can you fix this power that's in front of me, this family situation? The list goes on and on and on. And we have to consider, what would it look like if Jesus were here today? If Jesus had chosen to come today? Would he be famous, viral, fashionable, powerful, influential, trendy, someone whom we would love to follow and others would love to follow? Or would we also want the same? Just a practical Jesus on the side, where we could say, Jesus, help me with my school. Help me because I don't want to do school anymore. Take me out of it. Or Jesus, just help me with my family just a little bit. I got the rest, but just that's all I need. Or Jesus, give me that job security that I want. Jesus, help me so that I don't have to worry about my health. And I want to make clear, these are not wrong things to ask for. In fact, the Bible encourages us to ask for it. But you see, when we replace the powerful Jesus for a simple, practical Jesus, that's the same root of rejection of the people that we read about in Isaiah 53. These people, they let the immediate blind them to the important. The immediate circumstances blind them to the important circumstances which Jesus came to solve. For Jesus came to his very own, the very people he created and loved, but his own did not receive him. Jesus knew that. He knew a sinful people would not receive him, but the shocking thing about his humility is not just that he came, but that knowing these things, the servant of the Lord still came. From perfect fellowship with the Father in heaven, he took on flesh, 
became like a baby. He was acquainted with sorrow as he lived around those who were marked by brokenness and despair. He became acquainted with grief as he experienced sickness and death take away even those whom he loved. It was shocking. Why would anyone ever come down to be with broken humanity, sinful humanity? You see, every other religion, they say, you go escape suffering. The suffering in your life is a bad thing. You do everything you can to escape, and then you will be like God's. Then you will enjoy the good life. But what Christianity says is that God came into our suffering first. Before we did anything. In fact, when we did everything else wrong, God still chose to come in the form of a servant in the person of Jesus Christ, humble and meek, marked by suffering and familiar with grief. So we have to ask, why would Jesus do this? Why would he choose to leave everything behind to come be humble and meek? Well, he lowered himself because he came to accomplish something. He came to deliver those who believe from the greatest predicament of their life, the wrathful judgment of God against sin. And how would he do this? He would come to deliver them by first suffering for our sins, which leads me to my second point. You see, we would, we would find nothing wrong if someone suffered for the consequences of their own actions, right? If they messed up, if they did something wrong, they deserve the consequences. That's what we call justice. That's what we call justice. But in this case, Isaiah makes it clear that the servant suffered not because of his wrongs, but because of ours. If you look at verse four to six, we see in verse four onward, you see this contrast between he and our, he and our, we and him, he was pierced, our transgression, he was crushed, our iniquity. And verse six continues that we, like sheep have gone astray, we have turned. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see this bouncing back and forth? He, us, he, us. The reason for his suffering is not his wrong, but our iniquity. It's our iniquity. And he carries them. He was pierced for them. And on him, the Lord chose to lay the punishment we deserve on him. Isaiah predicts these sufferings recorded for us in Matthew's gospel account. And for, for this point, I just want us to look at the sufferings that Jesus endured for our sake. You see, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22 to 23, we see that Christ was innocent. The judge, Terry, executioner, Pilate, he, he sees this mock trial and he calls out to the crowd, why? Why? What evil has he done that he deserves to be put to death? And yet the people just cry out, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. You see, the cross was the most barbaric, shameful, painful death that anyone back then could have ever experienced. In fact, it wasn't reserved just for criminals. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. Those who were not, should not even be considered human. Only for them was the cross a worthy punishment. It was so just barbaric, so shameful that the Romans, they wouldn't even write it. 
They would use euphemisms, different phrases. They would be afraid to even say it. And yet here we see the crowds crying, let him be crucified. For the Jews themselves, they also understood that anyone hung from a tree would be considered cursed by God. And yet here again we see the crowds want him crucified. How much would they have despised him? How much does he not meet their expectations that they're just angrily crying out, let him be crucified, be absolutely crushed? But you see, Jesus' sufferings weren't just the rejection of the crowd, wasn't just a mock trial, just a, a sham of a trial, but it was from rejection to mockery. As Matthew 27 continues in verse 20 to 29, the guards took him, stripped him, put a scarlet robe, had a crown of thorns on him, kneeling before him and saying, Hail, the King of the Jews. Hail, the King of the Jews. We read in other accounts, he was beaten. He was whipped with a cord that was designed to tear off his flesh from the back of his, from his back. And now they're mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews. He suffered not just rejection, but also mockery from the guards and from those who are supposed to uphold justice. But you see, his greatest suffering was not the shouts of man. It wasn't the mockery of the guards, but it was the silence of God. As Matthew records for us in verse 46, hanging on that cross for hours and hours, thirsty, exhausted, tired, but he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who knew the presence of God intimately in heaven, Jesus, who walked with God day after day as he was doing ministry here on earth, finally on that cross, hangs there alone, abandoned by the disciples, abandoned by God, smitten and afflicted pierced and crushed. Why did Christ experience this painful suffering? Isaiah makes it clear. His sufferings, our iniquity, our failure to do as we were supposed to do, to obey God's law and to uphold his name. See, oftentimes we fail to recognize the true nature of our sins. Sometimes we think of sin as something like falling, but tripping, maybe. Failing in some innocent promise or a small mistake or a small oopsie. Yet the reality is that our sins are cosmic crimes. Cosmic crimes against a holy God. As the late R.C. Sproul wrote once, we fail to realize that even in the slightest sins we commit, such as little white lies, we are violating the law of the creator of the universe. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is truly an act of treason against the cosmic king. See, we understand this. If there's a local crime, it requires local justice to be satisfied. State crime, state justice. National crime, national justice. How much so cosmic crime? Cosmic events against cosmic offense against God. The only way, the only hope that those who have failed in such a way 
is to find a cosmic satisfaction to that justice. It's to find someone to suffer, whether ourselves or another, to suffer for our sake. As John Stott writes, before we can begin to see the cross as something to done for us, we first have to see it as something done by us. What nailed him and kept him on that cross? It was us. It was our sin. It was a sin which we committed against God. It was a sin which corrupted us, made us rebels, unable to save ourselves. It was a sin which condemned us to a life of misery, sorrow, and eventually death. See, every strike that he received, every nail which pierced his body, every minute he hung there in agony was for our sins. His sufferings, our iniquity. And we have to ask then, how can this be good? Right? How can one man's suffering somehow be good? You see, if this was all that was said, if we just saw Jesus hanging there and that's the end of the story, you're right. There is no good. Our sufferings would be meaningless. All the pain that we go through would have no purpose, no meaning just arbitrary pain. But if we look again at what John Stott says, before we see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. But once we see that the cross is something done by us, then we can see the cross as something done for us. You see, the goodness comes not from the suffering in and of itself, but from the effect of something done for us. And we see that that good comes through the saving sacrifice, the saving atonement which Christ offered for us on that cross. You see, all that we've read so far, we skipped perhaps the most central and important part of the entire entire song, entire verse of Isaiah. You see, it's called the servant's song, and it keeps going down from the top down, bottom up, until the central main point which is Isaiah 53, verse 5, which reads, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There's this Old Testament concept of atonement, which is carrying another's sin and bearing the weight of another's condemnation, judgment. And see, the Old Testament, it had a ram, on this day called the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would lay his hands on the animal, and that animal would be carrying not just the sins of the people, but then the punishment and judgment of the people, and then the ram would leave the camp. It would go out into the wilderness, symbolizing, in effect, that the people's sins and the judgment placed on this ram, ram goes away with the sin, and the people are now considered clean, considered atoned for, no longer liable to the judgment of their sin. And we see in Isaiah 53, verse 10, which was also the call to worship, that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's the same idea. This ram that would carry the sins, take it away from the camp, be judged outside in the wilderness while the people receive the benefit of forgiveness, that's what the servant would do. The servant 
would come. Note to a people who were standing before God, liable to cosmic judgment, committing cosmic crimes against this holy God, and he would come as the cosmic sacrifice, as the one who would satisfy that justice for us. You see, Christ knew he would suffer. Christ knew that a sinful people would reject him, but the amazing thing is he still said, I will go. I will go down and take the place of those deserving death. I will go and become their guilt offering for their healing so that by my wounds they would be healed. Why? Because he knew that in doing so, it would make absolutely clear to the people that he loved them. It would make absolutely clear to you that he loved you, that he came down for you. See, we see glimpses of this with friends, with other people in our lives, don't we? A friend who is humbling themselves, putting all their busyness aside just to what? Listen and care for us. That's love. Or maybe a spouse laying down the argument and saying, I will choose to forgive and care for you. Or a parent laying down your rights so that what? You may endure and support your child. We see glimpses of this love of laying down one's life so that another can benefit. And in our case, in all our case, this Jesus who looked at us even before we were formed, even before we knew him, even before we did one small little thing to earn any of that, he came and said, I will go. I'll go for you. As Romans 5, 8 says, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, once you recognize the seriousness of our sin, deserving nothing but death on a cross, if not worse, only when you recognize the seriousness of that can we then recognize the seriousness of Christ's love for you and for me. You want to know the extent of Christ's love? You look at the cross and you see your redemption there. As one theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, writes, the only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. You see, the cross reminds us every time we look at it, that's what we deserved. That's what our sins deserved. That's what God's judgment would look like. At the same time, when we look at the cross, especially now as believers, we're reminded that Christ paid it all. We're reminded that Christ hung there for you before you and I could even understand. Or more so, even when you and I might forget that love, even if you and, my, you and I might feel so unworthy, unforgivable, unlovable, Christ reminds us, you are forgivable. You are lovable. You are accepted. Because that's how much I love you and how much I suffered on that cross for you so that you cannot just have forgiveness, but acceptance. Not just acceptance, but wholeness. Not just wholeness, but hope for this life 
and a life to come. And nothing will change that. Christ came down in history in time to demonstrate and to accomplish that love for you. To show that his love is not only truly deep, deeper than we can imagine, but more than sufficient to deliver you and me from the condemnation of our sin. When we come to the cross, we lay on Christ our sin and shame. And Christ in turn lays on us reconciliation and righteousness. What does that mean? When we lay on Christ's sin and shame, what we deserve, what we, he bore on the cross for us, he looks at us and he lays on us reconciliation, forgiveness from our sins. So no longer are those sins counted against us, but the slate is wiped clean. But not only that, not only that, but also his life, which he lived for us, makes us righteous, makes us acceptable, makes us worthy to enter the presence of God with every need that we have, with every burden we bear, and to cry out, Abba, Father. In prayer, we can come in confidence, and that's what the cross shows us. That when Jesus laid down his life, For our sin and our shame, we receive the benefits of what he has done for us. And how do we know that these things are true? How do we know that we're reconciled? How do we know that we're righteous? It's because we look at Matthew 27, the last moments of Jesus' life. When he cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit, another gospel writer, he includes this, this aspect that it was definitive what he did. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And when he did that, when he gave his life for our sake, you see, all the gospel writers record that this curtain of the temple torn in two top to bottom. This curtain which symbolized, yes, God being present with his people, but separated because he was a holy God and a sinful people, When Christ died on that cross, what happened? That curtain was torn. With what Christ gave for the people, now his people could enjoy fellowship with God. They could come before God, not out of fear of condemnation, but in absolute confidence that in the blood of Christ, that their God would receive and would hear them. That's how we know that we are reconciled and redeemed and righteous. But not just that. You see, Good Friday, we remember that Our reconciliation was accomplished, but also it looks forward to when Christ would not just be dead, but be risen. You see, we know this because there would be an empty tomb, that the servant who died would be the servant who lived again and showed himself as alive to hundreds of people. It would be confirmation of Jesus' words, Jesus' ministry, everything that he did when he came back to life It would be confirmation of that, so much so that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting, resurrected, new, suffering-free life secured for them in Christ. That's how we know. The empty tomb. 
But lastly, we know this. We know that Christ is for us. Why? Because the cross is empty. See, Christ doesn't need to go back to the cross for the, the new sins you committed. Christ doesn't need to go back and ready himself again once for all. Payment made, payment received, forgiveness given. See, Christ endured the silence of God on the cross so that you and I can hear the pleasant words of God spoken to us. Christ's hands were pierced and remained pierced, initially marking his sufferings, but now marking redemption, our belief, and our hope that truly Christ did die and Christ was raised. That's how we know that Christ is for us. That's how we know that his sacrifice was truly saving for you and me And that's why we can call Good Friday good. You see, at the cross, when we look at it, Good Friday is good. And we look at the cross again because on it, God displays his perfect wrath on sin, our sin. But he also displays his perfect love for sinners like you and me. That's what makes Good Friday good. Not just that Christ suffered, but that through his sufferings, through his work, sinners like you and I can have hope to lay down our sins and receive the mercy, the forgiveness, the wholeness, and the hope found in God and in Christ alone. See, on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. On the cross, our sins were laid on Christ, and now at the cross, we find salvation and mercy the salvation and mercy of God. Through the sacrifice on the cross, we have hope. We have hope for this new life. And that's what Easter looks forward to. Yes, Good Friday, we look at the cross, but we know that we don't live right under the cross and stop there. But we know that it was accomplished there. And the celebration comes on Easter when our Lord was raised. We look forward to the new resurrected life that we can receive because of what Christ did on the cross on Good Friday. And that's what makes the gospel good news. That it was accomplished, that it was done, that it is finished. And so brothers and sisters, as we take tonight, just to look at that cross again, I encourage you, let us never lose sight of that cross are both perfect justice and perfect love meant in so perfect of a manner in Jesus Christ. May we see that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins, that Christ's love was willing to endure all the sufferings to prove, to demonstrate his love for us, and that Christ's love, that love shown on the cross, it will never let you go, but it is always for you. It is always for you. And so what I want to do as we close, I just want to give us a few moments to pray. I just want us to give us a few moments just to consider and to reflect, to respond to God's word. If, it's, if God is calling you to confess sins, to lay them down again at the cross, that I invite you, lay them down because Christ's blood is more than sufficient to forgive. If Christ is calling you to thank you for his love, then I pray that he would really abound in your heart joy 
and delight, and to really rekindle this delight in him once again. However the Spirit is leading you, let's take a couple moments to respond in prayer, then I will close us in prayer. Let's take a couple moments now. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. God, we thank you that we can look upon it on this Good Friday, on any Good Friday, and confidently say that it is good because you, Lord, ordained it, you, Lord, planned it for good. Though it was not good for Christ, he came because he loved us. He came because he wanted to save us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the love of Christ so perfectly displayed on that cross. And God, we ask, God, we ask for us that you would remind us day in, day out, whatever we are facing, that the cross is true. The cross is for us. And through it, we find forgiveness, hope, joy, and the anchor for our lives. So God, we thank you for this evening. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.